Everybody start clapping real loud all the way up to the stage for Frequency! Hi, you're listening to the Right About Now Poetry Podcast. My name is Davis Land, and we are finally back with season two. If you haven't noticed, you haven't been getting updates from us recently. That's because I've been doing some moving and a bunch of other life things happening. But hey, we are back with awesome poetry every week. This week, we are featuring Frequency. She's a poet out of New Orleans, Louisiana. She was born in Kenya in 1991. She's an activist with all sorts of honors all over the place, and I'm so excited to have her on the podcast to kick off season two. So... Here she is. This first piece is dedicated to black mothers in the United States. I've always wanted to be a mother. Growing up, I heard all about the joys of motherhood, from the first day of school to watching my kids graduate. I even looked forward to the apprehension of watching them go on their first dates. I knew I was young, but I figured it couldn't hurt to start planning for something so big so early. But now, I'm 23 years old, and I don't know if I have what it takes to stomach motherhood in this country. Over the years, America has taught me more about parenting than any book on the subject, has taught me how some women give birth to babies and others to suspects, has taught me that this body will birth kin who are more likely to be held in prison cells than to hold college degrees. There is something about being black in America that makes motherhood seem complicated seem like I don't know what to do to raise my kids right and keep them alive? Do I tell my son not to steal because it is wrong or because they will use it to justify his death? Do I tell him that even if he pays for his Skittles and sweet tea, there will still be those in the neighborhood that will watch him and see a criminal before a child who will call the police and not wait for them to come? Do I even want the police to come? Too many Sean Bells go off in my head when I consider calling 911. I will not take it for Oscar granted that they will not come and kill my son, so we may have gotten rid of the nooses, but I still consider it lynching when they murder black boys and leave their bodies to rot in the sun as a historical reminder that there is something about being black in America that's made motherhood sound like mourning. Sound like one morning I could wake up and see my son as a repeat of last week's story. Sound like I could wake up and realize the death of my daughter wouldn't even be newsworthy. You can't tell me Renisha McBride is the only black woman whose violence deserves more than our silence. What about our other dark-skinned daughters in distress whose deaths we have yet to remember? Apparently, gender is not that great of a protector if you come out of a body that looks like this. There is something about being black in America that's made motherhood sound like something I'm not sure I look forward to. I have written too many poems about dead black children to be naive about the fact that there could one day be a poem written about my kids, but I do not want to be a mother who gave birth to poems. I do not want a stanza for a son, nor a line for a little girl. I do not want children who will live forever in the pages of poetry yet can't seem to outlive me. And it's ladies' night tonight, huh? Yeah! I'ma spit a lady poem for y'all, that's cool. All right, let's do it. You know how people always be like, yo, women need to stop apologizing, they apologize too much. That shit's real, y'all need to stop fucking apologizing. With that said, this is called the I'm Sorry poem. I'm sorry. Oh no, truly I am. I'm sorry for so many things to so many people through so many times, but most of all, I'm just sorry I believed all the lies. I guess it should come as no surprise that the right to my body is a disguise based on the notion that a man has a right to anything in his eyes, from my thighs to my hair, and no, not my dreads, but the ones down there, as long as my skirt was short enough to invite him to stare. So, I'm sorry. 
I apologize for this disguise that I put on, but I'm so glad you knew it was meant to turn you on because the clothes that I wear have no significance to me as a human being. Rather, they're meant for you to define me by what you're seeing. Believing my hemline determines my inner being. I invite you to look down upon me while I suffocate beneath this glass ceiling, so forgive me. Forgive me, please, for not getting the memo that if I drink a little bit too much, I go from being a woman to a hoe. For forgetting that if I sip drinks, then liquor shouldn't be the only thing I expect down my throat. Because if I'm not really asking for it, then he really won't. Now I'm not sure if my apology is coming off entirely too sincerely. So let me take a minute to break it down for y'all a little bit more clearly. This apology is a symptom of a social disease seen from football rosters in Ohio to buses in New Delhi with outbreaks of slut shaming and victim blaming mentalities and no cure in sight under this current system of patriarchy. We've got invisible wars, invisible wars leaving visible scars on members of our nation's military. And don't get me started on what the hell is going on politically. See, I'd write my local politician, but he's probably taking the lead on defining rape in terms of words such as legitimacy. In fact, the following is a list of exact quotations taken from politicians in the United States of America. Rape victims should make the most of a bad situation. Rick Santorum, former presidential hopeful. Some girls rape easy. Roger Rivard, former Wisconsin congressman. Rape is like bad weather. If it's inevitable, you should relax and enjoy it. Clayton Williams, former contender for Texas governor. See, this disease has reached the top of our nation's leadership to the point of being endemic. But even without a medical degree, I've got a four-step regimen that's sure to end it. Number one, remember rape is not about sex. It's about power and privilege. And if you don't believe me, take a detour into our nation's prison systems. Number two. Don't teach women self-defense, modest dress, or other ways to avoid being raped initially. Instead, let's foster a culture that teaches men not to rape indiscriminately. Number three, if the case makes it to court, I've got advice for those on the bench. Perceptions of character are not as important as evidence. And finally, number four, if a person is raped, look for the rapist and not the reason. That one shouldn't have to rhyme. woman I remember from my childhood. The wife of a black doctor, a mother to five children and a law degree, I mean, damn. This was Superwoman, and I wanted to be just like her. A few years later, I discovered comic books predated the civil rights era. I discovered no matter how much I wanted it, that red S wasn't meant for black characters. And then I discovered the women that looked like me were remnants of caricatures. Jezebels who jumped from their towers and landed booty first in hip hop scenes. Aunt Jemima mammies who took off their aprons and donned their crowns as welfare queens. If only we had a woman to give to our daughters as role models, we begged and pleaded. Lifted our faces to the heavens asking the gods to send us the she that we needed when... Look up in the sky, it's a bird, it's a plane, it's a strong black woman. Yeah, you know who I mean. A sister who achieves by any means but understands the necessity of putting her dreams on hold to uphold the community. And this, 
This is the image we created to give our daughters the strength of superwomen. But it's tragic when we pretend to be the Picassos of our painful past. Because like scarlet A's on women's bodies to illustrate the romance between sexism and society, this symbol was whipped onto black women's chests until it bled a red S on the wedding night of racism and sexual brutality. Because like most stereotypes, the strong black woman has her roots in slavery's trees. Just another character written into the master's mythology that went a little something like this. Once upon a time, there were two women, both living in different hells. One was the strong black woman and the other, the Southern Belle. The Belle was a white woman oppressed by Southern patriarchy. Above all, valued for her chastity. She was bred to be a wife, but wasn't expected to satisfy carnal needs, so laying on her back became another one of the black women's duties. After all, she was strong enough to take it. I mean, what strength they must have taken to work the fields and the bedroom unwillingly? What strength they must have taken to have children knowing they were black oil in the gears of slavery? What strength they must have taken to hide a breast full of milk from these same children so the child of your rapist could feed to survive by becoming scapegoats of American history, torn down in mind and through the exploitation of our strong bodies? Somebody tell me how we managed to adopt another one of racism's bastard children. Held her high up to the light, but she was kryptonite to our daughter's improvement because what the hell is the point of teaching them to be superwomen when they don't have any powers? See, black women have never been known to stop bullets in our path. Instead, we're better known for clutching our kin close when we hear the guns blast. How could we be deemed super when we cannot even fly? When we are history's caged birds who were never taught to sing, let alone spread our wings. Locked in cages so we anamorphed into bird brain beings. Chicken heads cluck clucking in video scenes until flight became a distant dream. What bitter irony in comparing us to a hero with self-healing abilities, when in reality, black women at the highest risk of everything from heart disease to HIV, not to mention the emotional pain that we shoulder for our communities. And I don't know the last time I picked up a dictionary, but I do know this quite well. There's either something wrong with our definition of strength or our definition of self. Um, of black girls called Black Girls Rock, right? And this year, for the first time, the first lady was able to go, because she was black. It's fucking awesome! And so she goes out there, and she tells all these little black girls that they fucking rock, and you know what happens? All the white people are like, oh my god, how could you do that? What about white girls? Don't they rock? You're racist! So this poem is to the white women who wrote an article calling Michelle Obama racist because she said that black girls rock. Dear white woman, I know your type. Your grandmother probably took pride in how quickly she could turn a black boy into a mound of brown earth in history just by hearing the high-pitched sound of his whistle. I remember how your mother ignored my mother's bent back and calloused hands as she questioned her on why she wasn't on the front lines fighting for a woman's right to work. Now you, the daughter whose chorus of all lives matter drowned out the gospel wails of a mother who named her son after an angel only to watch him return back to his heavenly home and leave his earthly body asleep on a bed of asphalt under a sheet of suspicion. I should not have to explain this to you, to anyone. But we say that black girls rock for the same reason that we say that black lives matter. Because if we didn't, we wouldn't be so sure that thoughts like this ever crossed minds like yours. And minds like yours tend to ignore the things that don't affect them even if their ignorance affects us all. 
So we cannot have you telling our daughters the same lies that you told us, that black girls do not rock, but must become hard like them in order to survive. How we must wear the mask of Medusa to hide our pain, stare at ourselves in the mirror to become the hardest of stones in order to weather the erosion of our self-esteem. We, the dark-skinned daughters of Eve, who you'd have born with an adequacy imprinted onto our irises, have still managed to see ourselves for who we were created to be. So no, I am not sorry to be the one to tell you how the world does not revolve around your ignorance, though it is at times more blinding than the sun, because at the end of the day, we are more concerned that we have to tell our daughters they rock than anything you could ever have to say about it. It's cool, y'all. Can I read from my book a little bit? Get a little sneak preview? Okay. So basically, the book was written. I'm, a, I'm an immigrant to this country from Kenya. Um, yeah, you clap for fucking Kenya. Kenya's awesome, you guys. Yes. Um, which I always thought was really fucking cool, but like not everyone did all the time. So I used to make fun of like all the white kids for being too black and all the black kids for being too white. And then I was always too dark for everybody. It was fucked up, y'all. So I wrote a book about it. And uh, it's being sold over there. It sells for 15 online. You can get it for 10 if you broke. If not, pay the full price, because I'm broke. And that's how that works. Um, that struggle is fun. Say it again. Okay. So, the first poem in this book, um, it's called My Father's Lesson. I was never actually supposed to come to this country. My dad was just supposed to come for two years and like get his degree and then come back and we were supposed to be balling in Kenya. Um, but what happened, my mom told me recently, is that my father called me after about a year and told her that either we were coming to be a support system for him or he was coming back home to Kenya because as a six foot three, hella dark skinned black man, America was not cutting it for him. So. This is one of the first conversations that I had with my dad when I came to this country. It's called My Father's Lesson. Black father tells daughter that she is now black. Daughter is not convinced. She has grown up in the same brown skin she sits in as she listens to black father tell her of newfound blackness, but blackness is something her child mind is not yet able to understand. It jumps to more familiar things like cartoons, Thanks to how the most evil of villains are the ones who dress in black, who shroud themselves in the perceived terror of its darkness, it jumps next to crayons. Thanks to what it would mean to start coloring her family with the same shade once reserved for the nighttime and the monsters that come out of it, daughter decides she does not want to become black. She has yet to realize that black father never gave her a choice, that black father was never given a choice, that he stumbled upon this newfound blackness the hard way, how he heard it in the hollow hallelujahs that ricocheted off the empty church pews that were full until he sat down. It took just one year in this country for him to learn that America shrouds brown bodies in this perceived terror of our darkness that typecasts us all as the most evil of villains, scary as both the night and the monsters that come out of it. He does not want his daughter to learn of her own blackness in this way. So he tries to tell her of it but she is so young he knows she cannot possibly understand what he means, and for now, he can't help but see this unknowing as a blessing. You can find more about Frequency online at FrequencySpeaks.com where you can purchase a copy of her book, Becoming Black. I highly recommend you do.
So his book's about becoming black, right? Um, for one of the poems, I, I asked myself this prompt, like, if you're gonna write this whole fucking book about blackness, you gotta, like, timeline your shit, right? So, like, when was the first time you remember feeling black? If blackness wasn't something that you really felt from birth, what was your, your first memory and experience? And this is that poem. When the little white girl called me and Mo niggers, I didn't really know what she meant. I had only known nigger as a dead word buried deep in the pages of history, decayed in the throats of forefathers that had been buried along with their language. Her breath blew the dust from the coffins and unearthed an entire history reburied into my body. When the little white girl called me and Mo niggers, Mo knew exactly what she meant. Each syllable tightened an unseen noose that had always itched at the back of his neck. I watched as his sixth grade smile shattered against the lunchroom table. Her laugh, loud and lined with hatred, shook every last piece onto the cafeteria floor. I don't think I reminded him to pick up the pieces when it was all over. I was too busy trying to figure out how in one moment I could know so little about something and in the next know all about it. When the little white girl called me and Mo niggers. I felt her bark grow teeth and become bite, a wound that would go on to infect the rest of my life. Me and Mo were sent to the principal's office. We hadn't actually done anything. I had stayed seated while Mo yelled at her from a distance. Looking back, there must have been something passed down Mo's bloodline that made his bones become boulders and remember what happens to black boys when they come too close to white girls with anything but obedience on their tongues. We sat, banished in that office, licking our wounds, and I was left feeling like a soldier in a war. I had just realized I was fighting. Yes. All right. We got three more pieces for y'all. Um, this poem right here, I actually haven't shared it that much. I fucking love this poem. It actually came out of a Facebook post. I had an incident um, with something I like to refer to as WWF which is not the fighting thing. It's actually, she, she knows, it's white women fuckery. Um, so I had this white woman, she came at me with some fuckery and I just like, I like didn't know what to say to her, but I knew I had a lot to say to her. So I went on my Facebook and I was like, yo, other black people, like, do you ever feel like you have a lot of things to say to white people? What would you say if you could write a letter? 15 pages of responses from people. And so I took those responses and I smashed them all together and I made this poem called Dear White People. Dear white people, I don't even know where to start. In between my busy schedule comprised entirely of surviving white America, there is simply no time to write letters. And besides, any letter I write will most likely bring tears to your eyes, and I, for one, have had my fill of white tears. There are days I think you are not worth my ink that your whiteness is draining me of too much energy. Can't give you a taste of the tea for fear you'll colonize the whole kitchen, but today, I'm too angry to remain silent. Dear white people, stop making everything about you and how uncomfortable you are. I honestly don't give a flying fuck about your comfort level. You have made my very existence an exercise in discomfort. It is time for you to make room at the table. Better yet, go sit in the living room. I am not here to coddle your feelings, not here for your amusement. No, you cannot touch my hair. This isn't a damn petting zoo. And stop coming into my office asking for the managers if you aren't already looking at one. Dear white people, stop telling me about this colorblind society you allegedly live in. Telling me you don't see race is the racist drivel I hope you choke on. Telling me you respect me and don't see my color is like saying you have to pretend I'm not black in order to respect me. 
But let me assure you, I am black. There are plenty of things I'm not like. Your sassy black friend, stop saying, hey, girl, when you see me. You are not that slick. I hear the way you talk to Becky and Steve every day. You sound like vacation on Martha's Vineyard where you spent summers waiting in the bitter blue of the Atlantic. How I wish my toes could touch the ocean without stepping on the bones of my ancestors. Dear white teachers, why don't I know who my ancestors are? Why is only one part of my history important enough to teach? For the love of God, stop swiveling your heads every time slavery's mentioned. Newsflash, I wasn't there. And just because I'm the only black person in this class doesn't mean you can ask me to speak on behalf of my race. I'll believe you care about the opinion of black students when you stop shutting down conversations because I call another student racist. Dear white people, why do you hate being called racist more than you hate racism? Why do you listen to Tim Wise over actual black people about the black experience? Dear white people, stop using black on black crime as a reason we shouldn't be outraged by the murder of black people by white cops. If a black person kills another black person, they will go to jail and that is what we call justice. If a white cop kills a black person, they will get paid leave and that is what we call justice. Apparently, justice is when a black body dies. Dear white people, every time I've written white people, I've written in lowercase because I am tired of you capitalizing on our pain. We are angry and raw and tired and angry and raw and tired and tired and tired, but we will not rest because we know the future belongs to those who prepare for it and you have been getting us ready for centuries. <laughs> I was woken up recently by a text message uh, from one of my uncles that was telling me about this massacre that happened in Kenya at a university known as Garissa University. And I woke up that day and I was at work and I was working, but really I was just like scouring the internet trying to see what was up. And I just was exhausted by the end of the day. And this, this poem came out because I, I'm an organizer here in the United States uh, around issues of you know, police violence, state-sanctioned violence in the black community, and there are so many global parallels between what happens to black and brown people across this world that it really hit me in that moment, because nobody seemed to know what the fuck was going on in Kenya, even though 150 people were killed just like that. So this, this poem is called Rhetorical Question from the United States to Garissa. If a gun is shot, and both trigger and bullet have only known the taste of strange fruit and the seeds they grow from. Will the world call it tragedy? Or will we wolves open our tartarous throats and give thanks for this daily feast? Pick your lamb's wool hair from our teeth, use it to clean the barrel of the gun we gifted your mother at your baby shower and call it Thursday. Wow. Lessons on being an African immigrant in America. One, lose your accent. People will make fun of the African girl, but nobody, nobody fucks with the black girls. Even when young, they can be so angry. Two, don't stare at white people. They're not animals in the zoo. Three, when they stare at you like an animal in the zoo, do not be confused. 
Do not bare teeth when they reach out to pet you, to touch your hair without permission. You are, after all, so exotic, so foreign, so other. Some would even call you inhuman. They will call you alien. They will ask you, who called your spaceship to crash land your brain, drain dreams onto these Western shores? These Western shores have already landed ships from your world when we invaded it. But this is the 21st century, and we don't need chains to make slaves of people anymore for with a name like Mwende, Kalandu, Katwiwa, the first day of school will suck. Do not envy your brother David or blame your mother Lucy. The way their names roll smooth off foreign tongues is proof that colonization and assimilation go hand in hand. You are your grandmother's legacy. Five, when black people tell you, you aren't really black, Remind them how Amadou Diallo's dead body looked no different than any other black man's in this gradual genocide. And I know you may not call it that in this country, but believe me when I say we know what genocide looks like. We know what it sounds like. It's white lies telling families that they are enemies. We are identical twins separated at birth, now strangers. The hardest thing we will ever learn is how to replant a family tree whose fruits are exploited and whose branches bore nooses. Six. When nearly 300 of your West Coast kin go missing and Americans claim them as our girls, refrain from asking questions like, why did it take a month and a hashtag for them to claim family when it was in the news? Or why weren't the 60 schoolboys attacked by Boko Haram claimed as our boys too? Instead, ask that they do not Coney 2012, these 234 to the backs of their browsers, that they not be the kind of family who only shows up to $12 weddings and funerals. Seven, if people ask you if you're upset, because you're on your period, the week Al-Shabaab attacks Amal in your home country. Do not marvel at those who think blood only comes out of holes that the body has formed naturally. Eight, if you realize that you are powerless to stop your metamorphosis from the African girl to the American girl, every time you break free from Western cocoon and fly back to your roots, Resist the urge to remain pupa in the silk of stolen comforts. Confront the turbulence that will shake your flight with the truth that you are no longer sure which place is home and which is more foreign to you. Oh, man. Y'all, thank you. Thank you so, so much again for having me tonight. Um, this last poem, I'm about to share with y'all. I don't know if any of you like were listening when Ebony was reading my bio. That shit is scary, man. Sometimes I hear that and I'm like, I don't, I don't know what to do with all that. I feel like I have to live up to all these things that I don't really know if I am or if they just like sound really good. And and um, yeah, man, it's just it's, it's hard. Um, yeah, but basically this this is um, a kind of vulnerable poem. I'll probably cry. And I was practicing in the parking lot and I was bawling my little Kenyan heart out. So bear with me. Thank you so much for having me and for holding this space. And I really hope that y'all enjoyed the show. The bio reads poet, reads activist, youth worker, producer for the vagina monologues, reads college graduate, voted first ever feminist of the year. The bio never gives any further explanation as long as it sounds good on paper. Never asks what it means to be voted feminist of the year when feminism is not about women competing. It never tells of how I almost quit the vagina monologues after nearly drowning in a sea of white women's tears. How I stayed afloat by making buoys of my brown-skinned sisters who became the holiest of blessings when they held high my heavy spirits in their already calloused hands. The bio reads token, 
It tells all of how golden bright I shine. It does not tell of how I sometimes feel like someone has made a pinball machine of my life. The flippers are the people who bump me in whatever direction shines the bonus lights bite back at them. It does not tell of how I feel like careless hands have spent me and I don't know if I was ever made of gold or just another coin to be played. It never tells the tales behind the degree or all I had to swallow to earn it. It never questions if what white piece of paper has made this blackness any less of a burden like it promised it would. When people ask me how it is that I got where I am today, I don't know if they want to hear the truth or some version of it that makes them think I am not as broken as they are. Don't know if they want to know how many nights I still cry alone in bed, how I overthink every little thing that I said and beat myself up for opening my mouth at all, of how many nights I cry alone in bed because I did not open my mouth at all even though I know that silence is nothing more than the most gentle form of death. I do not think they want to hear about the shoulders that I've stepped on to get to where I am today or the people who have willingly sacrificed themselves so I could become all that you see in front of you. I am not a self-made woman and that is a hard thing to admit. I am not, I'm sorry, I do not know what kind of woman that this makes me and that is a hard thing to admit. If my bio read like the life that tries to hide behind it, it would read that I faked it until I made it and now I don't know what parts of me are real anymore, that everything I appear to be is because I have gotten so good at hiding what it is I really am. It would read, I started smoking weed at age 13 and I haven't been sober since. Can't really remember most of my youth because of it and I think that's a good thing. I guess I learned early the sense of power one gets when they control how thick the smoke is in their own lives. It would read, the girl who never learned to say no to others would read, the girl who learned that sometimes it doesn't matter if you do. It won't stop them from twisting your smile into a closed-lip fortress that someone tried to destroy after they waged war on your body. It would tell you how tired this body is of being a battleground. How it knows there can be no winners in the civil war of the self. It would tell you how tired I am of men and women who think this body is all I'm worth. It would tell you I am tired of thinking this body is all I'm worth. Would be tired of being told that I need to come out as if I ever claimed a closet for a home. Would tell you I am tired of explaining to women that my love for men is not a betrayal. Would tell you I am tired of explaining to men that my masculinity is not a betrayal. It would tell you that I love like a forest fire but I've never forgotten the taste of a firefighter's flesh. It would tell you how these flames once made me want to quit this body, but I found my soul hiding in the crests of my hands when they folded themselves into a holy prayer and I crucified myself against a pen. If the bio read like the life that can no longer hide behind it, it would read, I am 23, going on burnt out, and sometimes I can't wait to be my own ashes, dancing freely in the wind. <laughs> And that's all for Right About Now this week. Again, you can buy Frequency's book, Becoming Black, at FrequencySpeaks.com. You can also find Right About Now Poetry at Juan Poetry on pretty much any social network. And you can find me, Davis Land, at DavisLand.info. Subscribe to Right About Now Poetry on iTunes and share it with your friends. Also, if you leave a rating or a comment, that would be super helpful for us. Huge thanks to WCAI in Woods Hole, Massachusetts for letting me use their studios to record. Once again, I'm so excited for season two to start. You can find us here every week with awesome poetry.